What I'd like to explore <clears throat> with you tonight is something we can call heroic, joyous effort. A little bit uh, long-winded term. Attempting to bring together real aspects of this path. Heroic, joyous effort. Perhaps we could call it enthusiastic perseverance. Sometimes it's just called right effort, appropriate effort, diligent effort, nonetheless effort. Many of the questions uh, this morning, this afternoon, certainly had to do with effort. And in my own life, I've had a tremendous interest in this subject, effort and energy. I'd like to explore in a practical way some of the implications of this realm for our practice here and when we go home. The practice of insight meditation is both strenuous and also delicate. I'm using a number of opposite type terms to attempt to capture a rather subtle approach to living. And it's very easy to shift over to one at the expense of the other, where the heroic effort becomes joyless. and where the joyous effort becomes a cover-up for fear, laziness, uh, weaknesses that we would do better to look at and to grow out of. But together they seem to balance each other, at least for me they do. Perhaps before we start, If I could uh, give you one image that the Buddha used, which will help keep us on course. One of the yogis practicing at the time of the uh, Buddha's teaching was extremely enthusiastic and started sitting day and night, leaving all kinds of things out of his life. And after an initial rush, became what we would call today burnt out. And the practice became very dreary and uninteresting. He had to drop it. He felt as if he had failed. And he came to the Buddha and said, look, I gave it my best and this is what I have. There's no fruit. So the Buddha asked him what his work was before he had become a monk. 
And he said that he was a musician. So the Buddha suggested that his instrument was a lute, that if the strings were too tight, music wouldn't be coming in a way that was appealing. And if the the lute was too, the strings were too uh, not tight enough, there wouldn't be any sound. And he said, you have to find just the right balance for the strings to be tied so they're not too tight or too loose. And it's the same with our practice. And that sounds pretty straightforward, uh, but I found that it's quite complicated to know how to honor that. I think it's a very, it's very good advice. I think it varies from individual to individual and it varies from time to time, even for the same individual, as to understand what balance is. Just a few more terms so that we're, so it's concrete, so this isn't an abstract discussion. In terms of what we've been doing since yesterday evening and today, largely effort would be the bringing of attention to the object that we're aware of. Bringing attention to the breath. Bringing attention to pain moving attention to sleepiness or restlessness, etc. Remembering to do that and doing it, having the energy to do it time and time again. That would be one of the main uses of right effort. So there's mindfulness in it. That is what we're doing is bringing mindfulness to the breath, bringing mindfulness to pain. And as the practice unfolds, there's also something you might call discernment in the mindfulness. It's not just being concentrated, it's uh, grasping what it is you're attending to. What is that? And that becomes tremendously significant because some of the things that come up for us in the mind are toxic and destructive and create a living hell for all of us. And some of the things that come up in the mind are very nourishing, healthy, life-giving, and create harmony for ourselves and for all the people that we come in contact with. And so as we see this, as the mind is brought time and time again to the object of meditation, and we're able to discern what is it that's happening, the potential for change becomes enormous from the seeing. The seeing is very powerful. It's not limited to sitting. It includes action as well. Okay. It seems as if energies and effort are needed for anything worthwhile in life. Can you think of anything that you've done where you've worked really hard? Just put tremendous energy into it. It's not a rhetorical question. I mean, really think about it. And I can think of a few for myself. 
Most of them I wouldn't want to do again. I don't know about you. Um, there was tremendous effort, but I didn't know what for. Uh, very often the effort was uh, somehow coming from externals. It was being under the influence of some authority or some goal that was given to me. Often there was fear involved and ambition. Fear of failure, ambition for something that was tremendously valued. And that same dynamic can enter into spiritual work. There's no reason why it can't. We're still just humans. And it can reassert itself in any number of ways. To give you a bias that I have so that what I'm saying can be decoded by you. On the one extreme, I had experience in the army and in graduate school getting a PhD, which was not that different from the army. It was more cleverly disguised, but it was... The point is, I had tremendous energy uh, directed towards other people's projects and done in ways that they thought was good for me. And it took me about 10 years to perhaps rehabilitate myself from it. And I was successful. So I know what it feels like to have tremendous energy and to get rewarded for it and to burn your way through something and also in the process to lose something a certain kind of sensitivity, lose touch with yourself in that sometimes when these uh, energy journeys take off, uh, we, we can't afford to look at w- what it's all about, why we're putting out so much effort, what does it all amount to? And so in my own case, Well, I have to add another example. Certain kind of monastic training when I was in Japan and Korea. Uh, Very different approach in that the people were genuinely uh, concerned with the things that we are concerned here. But some of the approaches or the techniques or styles of motivating people had to do with setting um, extreme goals like no sleep for extended periods of time, like a week. And everyone pushing everyone, using some of the same approaches of fear of failure and wanting to be liked and thought of as a good yogi, playing upon our ambition and our fear. And I developed certain qualities that were valuable in all three experiences, in the army, in graduate school, and in monastic life. And I also lost some things in the process. And at one point reacted for a number of years and went to to the other extreme of somehow each person having to, um, I don't know, to make a caricature of it. This gets talked about in Harvard Square a lot. You do things because it feels right. And you don't do things if they don't feel right, as if feelings are necessarily always so reliable. 
But what it can amount to is a real avoidance of all kinds of challenges, a kind of uh, overindulgence at times. But at its best, it emphasizes something else, which is sensitivity, the uh, delicate aspect of the practice. And at its best, the energy comes from within. There's no authority now telling you what to do or what's good for you. You're on your own. And you move through life and with awareness, something happens, you learn from it, you correct. And tremendous energy comes from the learning itself. You make a mistake, you see it. Oh. And as you learn about yourself, about how to live, Uh, tremendous energy gets fed into your endeavor just from the learning itself. Now, I don't know if this is for everyone, but uh, for me it has worked that way. The learning has been very motivating. And it has a free feeling to it. So it's outside of the concerns of uh, external authority and it has an uh, impromptu, spontaneous quality to it as you just keep learning as you go along. And sometimes the learning is enormous, there's a real insight, and sometimes it's small things. But it creates energy. And it can be very joyful. Okay, I'm not setting this up as, in a moment you'll see, it's, uh, it gets more complicated. At least for me, it has. In early Zen, in China, sometimes referred to as the heyday, the golden age of Chinese Zen, they had no techniques, and they didn't have formal sittings like this. Uh, a group of yogis would gather around a particular teacher, and people were on fire with the quest. Self-inquiry, who am I? You had to put it into words. What am I? And people would just go off for periods of time and, and meditate and come back, check in and check out. And sometimes there'd be a lot of people together and sometimes not. And they'd sip tea. It was, there was not much formality and there was tremendous energy and effort. Because for some reason in that time period, people naturally cared about that question. Who am I? What am I? What am I doing here? Eventually that weakened. People no longer had that authentic, spontaneous, powerful inner quest. And the Zen masters became alarmed. 
that the Dharma would die out. And so they invented all kinds of techniques like koans, which many of you perhaps know, enigmatic questions that defy the rational mind, formal sittings, group sittings, all kinds of uh, monastic arrangements to intensify and to simulate and to, in a sense, light a fire under our behind. And it was needed because it was no longer coming from within. And so all kinds of help was provided. Certain kinds of interviews where uh, students were challenged, encouraged, depending on what was needed, etc. So I think the question of effort has to do a lot with where we are, honestly, each one of us. And it seems the history of all these kinds of things, by and large, most of us do need some kind of help, some kind of encouragement, something to help us develop effort in the service of paying attention and learning and freeing ourselves. If I painted a a black and white dichotomy between, let's say, the graduate school army monastic model and on the other extreme sort of uh, pure spirits, the mystical quest, uh, I don't feel it that way, at least not any longer. Let me show you how subtle it can become. The same teacher who is a, a Zen master in Korea who um, strongly pushed us to sit without sleep for one week. And we did it, and we considered it barbaric. We did feel some benefits come from it, but we also felt that we were a little leathery from it and lost something. But it was sort of something was gained and something was lost, and we kind of had him in a pigeonhole sort of United States Marine Corps Dharma. (laughs) But on the way back from Korea, we stopped off in Hawaii and here were all these people with uh, surfing boards and, you know, know, I don't have to say more. And we were just stunned. And we said, well, how would you teach Dharma to these people? Because we had just come out of freezing cold mountain monastery in Korea. It was our, maybe you can get away with it there, having people not sleep for a week and all the rest of it. And he, without hesitation, said, oh, we would just teach them paradise then. (laughs) Also, uh, some of us who went to Korea needed that. And some people need the opposite. Some people have very strong will, very powerful will, and can will their way through anything. The danger with that is you can become like a trained seal in that whatever the reward is, just tell me what it is and I'll do it. Jump through hoops. And the question about what it is you're going after is omitted. And so sometimes for people like that, something else has to be uh, perhaps given a higher premium. And that would have to do with the sensitivity 
with the increasing ability to discern your own limits. Take sleep, for example. You can impose an arbitrary limit and say, people get, let's say, don't sleep for a week or only sleep X number of hours. And that can be very helpful, as many of the people here have discovered in retreats here. The other way you can come to it is by teaching people to really come to understand themselves in terms of their body's needs, the mind's needs, really accurately, being able to tell when the mind uh, deludes the body in terms of offering it more sleep than it needs or not enough. And so by careful attention and living your life, slowly and gradually, you can come to not really need sleep so much. It takes longer and the results are not as dramatic or immediate. But what is developed is this inner sensitivity, this capacity to learn, which you have. We live and learn. And it could have to do with sleep, could have to do with anything else. That's really not important. So my own feeling now is it's so much of it, it's very much of an individual matter. There's no question that effort is needed. And how to arouse that effort? And again, it seems so very much individual. You get discouraged. How many hours can you keep looking at your back pains or your knees. And there's low energy. How do we arouse effort? Let me suggest a few ways. For me, personally, the way that has made the most sense and has sustained me, it's not the only uh, way in which effort has been developed. But for me, it's been the main way and the one that I trust the most, and that is that it comes out of understanding. Living a certain way, seeing the consequences of living that way, living another way, seeing the consequences of that, and somehow learning from it. For example, and this is really, I think, to the point in terms of what we're doing. Does it matter if we're mindful or not? Who cares? Is it just some kind of arbitrary technique? Is it Buddhism? It's only some kind of a preoccupation of people called Buddhists. Just put simply, does it, are there any consequences to not paying attention? to what you're doing in the moment. What happens to life when we don't pay attention? And if we do, does it matter? Now, if you can begin to see that, if you find that it does matter, for example, um, even now in your practice, perhaps you've seen certain things. When you're aware 
when you're directly perceiving something, very often it sets you free. Has anyone noticed that? And this is long before nirvana or any other enlightenment or any other goals that perhaps you feel are quite far away. You can feel it in the moment that when you pay attention to what's happening, something changes in that moment. Fear comes up. And if we can arouse effort to look at fear rather than to move away from fear, there's an alchemy that takes place. And of course, that depends on the degree to which the looking is concentrated and steady, unwavering. The fear goes through a change. Sometimes it even falls away. Certain moods that we may be in, perhaps they break up when we look at them. They're not as solid as we think they are. They fall apart. The bottom comes right out from under in the light of clear awareness. One image that's been used for it is the flame, flame of attention. And how about when we don't pay attention? See, perhaps you already mentally know that, well, of course, you start bumping into things and saying stupid things and allowing all kinds of uh, foolish ways of living to continue and all of that brings with it. And I don't know, but perhaps we could all agree on that. But that isn't what I'm talking about. Um, The understanding has to be directly lived and experienced. And if you see that, then there's effort that comes out of the understanding. Something in us learns, some intelligence inside us learns that this moves us towards freedom, towards more space in the mind. This seems to just tie us up in knots or create blockages. So understanding can help arouse energy. And as I say, um, it's probably very much of an individual matter. Uh, Effort, rather. Faith. And in the Buddhist tradition, faith is perhaps a bit different than uh, what we're used to in Uh, Judeo-Christian usages of that term. At least in most approaches in Buddhism, faith is something that is meant to be done at the beginning and something that we grow out of. If, If for whatever reason you have strong faith that this teaching has something to it, maybe it's a intuition that you have or even a little bit of experience has already convinced you that there is something here. And if there is strong faith, then energy can come from that. Effort will come from that. Supposing you have no faith in this, then I would think it would be rather difficult you know, to get launched 
and to begin to do enough to find out if there's anything real here that's worth your best effort. Because if there isn't, it'd be silly. Just to come here, just to launch the practice, using coming to IMS for the moment as uh, the norm. I know that many of you have done practice elsewhere. Think of all the effort it took to get here. Uh, I can see by a few expressions, probably it had to do with planning, arranging financially, uh, making scheduling arrangements, packing, getting in the car, coming. Who knows what was, sometimes a lot, even for a weekend. Just to get here, just to hold your body up in an upright position, right? Just to move the body around, to get it to do the walking meditation. Oh no, not again. (laughs) To get it into the hall. Now that's really the very beginnings of effort because the real effort is the mindfulness. If you're just getting the body to walk up and down, but there's no mindfulness, that's not really the correct use of, um, of effort. And then we get here and we're launched and perhaps we have some nice feelings and a few good sittings, but inevitably, I mean, if there is a honeymoon, it has to come to an end. Maybe you haven't gotten to the honeymoon yet. I don't know. But if there is one, it comes to an end. And there can be some very difficult times in the practice when uh, materials, emotional materials that have been locked up inside for a long period of time surfaces, and there you are with it in this pressure cooker, which is set up so that you should be with it. And there is where the courage comes in, courageous effort that way of looking at it. It has a warrior-like quality, even though it's so gentle. And the warrior-like quality has to do with the growing determination to face and open up to our life as it is. No submachine guns or swords or outward signs of combat, yet there is a a need for a certain courage because we all of us get into these spaces in meditation. And here, a suggestion that I would make is the objects that come up in the mind that are not too desirable are hard to attend to. Fear, loneliness, there's something that just does not want to attend to them. And so, tremendous effort is needed. Now, if we work too hard, if we try to bite off too much, the practice becomes very grim and there's no enthusiasm or joy in it. And yet, if we do nothing, there's no point in being here. And so, in a way, we have to, uh, using the image of the Buddha, finding our, our... point of balance, taking on a little bit more than we thought we could, to challenge ourselves in ways that perhaps we didn't think we could. Perhaps fear comes up and there's sweat and tremendous urge to eat or run or anything, and we swallow hard and stay. 
And maybe we only stay five minutes and we say thank you and we move somewhere else. That's a beginning. And so each one of us has to know what our limits are. If you try to take on too much too quickly, probably it won't work. See, this is kind of a marathon. Scratch out kind of. It's a lifetime practice. It's not a weekend to Nirvana or Satori or anything like that. It just goes on and on and on and on and on. And it can be joyous. Let's get to that side of the... (laughs) This is going to be harder. This is difficult to put into words. Um, There's a kind of delight that the mind can have in knowing that it's moving towards love, health, service, clarity, compassion, even if it's very rocky and what you're looking at and experiencing are just the opposite. It's a very fulfilling kind of challenge if you understand, not because I said it, because you really know that, that it's worth it. If you hear the mind making up lies, Uh, preparing it for speech that will be a lie. The effort to bring attention to that and to see it, perhaps having it drop away, uh, just a small step in the direction of personal integrity. These things come up all day long. Starting to feel a certain amount of self-respect, a certain amount of dignity, Real dignity, not the kind that Charlie Chaplin pokes fun of. Dignity that comes, I think perhaps that can only come from ourselves. As we, and here we bring the courageous part in. As we stay with our life as it unfolds, bringing a discerning quality of attention to it. Um, sometimes the joy comes about in one sitting. You have a glimpse of what this path is about and forever thereafter, no matter how many ups and downs you have, there really are no ups and downs. It doesn't have to be in a sitting. It can happen anywhere. Suddenly you're given a, uh, a glimpse of the real possibilities of tremendous peace and love and clarity that is in us, that each one of us has, it's inherent. And then it shuts down, we lose it. But a knowing that it's not a hallucination or a projection or any of those kind of words, but actually it's more real than what it is we're being pushed around by much of the time. And so if you've tasted that, there can be tremendous exuberance and enthusiasm 
even when your legs are hurting and your lids are heavy. And it's not corny. It's coming out of some depth of understanding that the task that we're involved in is worth it. It's worth doing it. And then every now and then an insight happens and that I think there's joy with that. That's what I meant by learning. The insight can be very small or can be quite profound, but suddenly you feel more alive. Some particular pattern that's been controlling you for many, many years is suddenly understood. And perhaps it weakens or even falls away. And there's a happy feeling, there's real joy. I think for Dharma practice to go anywhere, and I know there's nowhere to go, but to to not go anywhere really requires both. We have to know and be able to stand firm at times when we'd rather be in bed. And we have to know when to rest. How to rest the mind and the body so that it can be really, truly more effective in what we're doing. If we go out of balance one way or the other, eventually we come to know it. In the traditional texts, when this kind of effort is talked about, it's talked about in terms of the enemy being laziness. And laziness, uh, I'm not sure laziness is the best word, but it's, it's a rather broad use of laziness. It encompasses uh, real con- preoccupation with self-ease, um, lack of confidence, or is not having, not being able to, to um, have energy, there being weak effort, because as soon as things become unpleasant, we wither, and we long for our nice little apartment with our little refrigerator or big refrigerator problem, and a tremendous preoccupation with ease, being at ease, being comfortable, being warm enough everything being just right. Not having to have a roommate is here or a little room and you can't even open the window if you're a fresh air fiend. Sometimes the inability to have the required amount of effort according to this view of laziness, has to do with not thinking too well of ourselves. Having a rather unfavorable, in modern terminology, unfavorable self-image. So we're very easily discouraged. We've already concluded that we aren't the kind of person who could possibly come anywhere close to all of the things that are described as being possible 
in Dharma work, forms of freedom, enlightenment, great peace, compassion. How could that be for me? And then we also read and hear from teachers that it's inherent, that each one of us already is it. We already have it. And yet there's a tremendous doubt that. And so one of the solutions is that we just go limp. We just give up. We fall down. The hell with it. We suck our thumb. We climb inside a refrigerator. So we have to examine, inquiry is called for here, if we have certain tendencies to get easily discouraged and feel defeated, certainly not limited to IMS or a weekend retreat here, but if this is something that, is, that has been with us for a while, and if so, can we flush it out? Can we look at it? Now, when I say um, lazy, There's no question that this practice is not for lazy people. In my mind, there's absolutely no question about that. And perhaps some of you at this point are feeling, well, gee, I have a lot of laziness. I'd better pack up and go home. No, everyone's welcome. In fact, a very important way of developing effort and energy is to begin with seeing the laziness. Another uh, use of the term laziness by the ancients had to do with using energy and effort for things that were spiritually meaningless or of very low value, frittering, frittering away our time, our life energy. You know, we have tremendous energy for all kinds of things. I, some of the things I thought of when I ask you all to reflect that I've done staggering amounts of energy for projects that are rather questionable or for ways in which we live. If you look closely, perhaps you can see that. And we don't have that same kind of energy for our spiritual work. Sort of things are backwards. And you can see people working hard. You know, there are a lot of people on this planet working very hard in factories, on farms, eking out a living, their entire life, perhaps, is absorbed in, in, the, in working on a farm, even dreaming about the farm at night. No room at all for anything resembling Dharma. It's just that people are exhausted. Survival. But tremendous effort going into it. And if you look around, there's a lot of energy and effort being expended for all kinds of things. Now, at least some of that has to be directed in a very well-modulated, balanced, sensible way to what I would say are questions of life and death, what we're doing here. And again, I don't mean to detract from the joyous part, but if self-understanding isn't a high priority in life, I just don't know what is. Because the degree to which we're developed is what is the stamp that we put on everything we do. We put our signature on everything all day long. 
Now, this is not to say don't be a farmer or don't work in a factory and just sign up to IMS and become an LTY for the next 10 years. I mean, if you want to, that might be a good thing too. But what it's saying is that whatever it is, is to bring the two together. Bring whatever it is you're doing in life, whatever job or way in which you live, and this Dharma attitude of wisdom and compassion, of bringing mindfulness to the moment, of learning through the keen eye of awareness how to live so that no matter what we're doing is Dharma practice and so that we give our best energy to something that really is worthwhile. Now, if you have a sense of rebirth of future lifetimes, from the Buddhist point of view, there's an interesting... I say fact, but I can't really call it a fact because probably for all of us or most of us, it's a belief. The tremendous energy that we put to accumulate things in life, to acquire money, property, power, you know, all the things that we... We lose it all when we die. When the physical body dies, you cannot take any of that with you. You know that cliche, you can't take it with you? Turns out to be true. (laughs) like a lot of cliches. (laughs) And yet it is said that what you can take with you is not anything that you've accumulated, but who you are is what you take with you. In other words, the mind development, development on the level of being that we're doing here is something that we take with us. And so it seems rather foolish to put so much energy into things that are easily lost, that we lose interest for even in this lifetime, and to have so little energy directed towards what is so important. Sanity, let's call it. Our own. And as we add to our own sanity, we contribute to the sanity of the planet. I don't think I did as good a job with the joyous part. I I wish I could... (laughs) The heroic, the courageous part, I think, is pretty obvious. It's hard. But if the joyous part doesn't develop, and we can help that develop by gradually reflecting on the value of what we're doing experientially, then Dharma practice doesn't go very deep and probably you'll leave it if there isn't that kind of real vitality and exuberance. No matter how quiet you may be, that's not it. There can be tremendous exuberance and joy in the doing of it. Anyway, uh, why don't we leave it there for the moment. Anyone have any questions or comments? In particular, I'd be interested in what's been happening to you in terms of your own efforts to bring mindfulness to the objects that come up from moment to moment, what your experience has been during this past day or so. Any comments or questions? Uh, I can't see. I can see a hand. Sure.
very appropriate for you right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm happy that's so. One of the ways in which effort is developed is through, let's say, people called teachers. There's another source that I neglected to mention, which for some people can be very, very helpful, and perhaps this will be for you. I'd like to get back to it in terms of how to work with the fear. But as a source of inspiration to help generate energy and effort, so that the effort uh, gradually becomes steady, independent of the fluctuation of whether you're in a good space or not so good, there's a, a, a harmonious, steady outflow of effort. And the effort is balanced. It's not pinched by striving or anxiety of trying to get somewhere. It's like that, the middle that the Buddha talked about. And that is... For some people, reflecting on the spiritual heritage. Now, if you read Buddhist texts, they're talking about the great yogis who have lived, all of whom have gone through the same things we're going through. And here is a very, very important point, I think. The Buddha wasn't always enlightened. In other words, he had to get there. He had to work really hard. Now, this particular approach to spiritual development in in Vipassana comes out of the experience of that human being and has left a certain important coloration to it, which may or may not appeal to you, but I think it should be made explicit. The Buddha was not a savior. And time and time again, and that's why effort is so central in the system, pointed out that all that he could do is point the way, but you have to do the work. Each one of us has to do the work. And so it's that kind of path with tremendous emphasis on personal research, testing experience, developing self-reliance, confidence in ourselves, perhaps starting with faith, however that's generated, and the faith becoming less essential as our experiences become stronger and more convincing. And so sometimes reading the lives, I would enlarge it, of course. It's not to, by any means a monopoly of Buddhism. It's all the great saints and sages of all, which are a legacy of the entire human race. Within the Buddhist tradition, you can read the life of Milarepa, what he was willing to go through for freedom. And maybe that's a prerequisite, a real yearning for freedom for all of us. And sometimes reading these lives, in whatever religion or tradition or no religion, of other human beings just like ourselves who've gotten fed up with being crazy and destructive and unfulfilled and dangerous. Uh, King Ashoka in ancient India, who was an emperor who was responsible for the death of many, many people in, in war, became repulsed by all of the destruction that he had contributed to and became an extraordinary uh, pacific and 
benign and spiritually evolved emperor, king. So sometimes, in general, for all of us, a few paragraphs of people who have lived before us, we didn't just get shot out of a cannon. I mean, this has been going on for a while. Sometimes understanding that we're connected to live people right now, all of us here in this room, and also other human beings who've been as bent out of shape as us, and maybe worse. Okay, so you find yourself having some fear, and it's, it's come up today. Yeah. Again, one thing that can help to generate energy and effort to face the fear is an understanding of the enormous cost that fear has entailed in being controlled by fear. Do you see it as a very high or perhaps the highest, let's limit it, just say a very high priority in your own life to come to terms with fear? Honestly, do you feel that? That it's a, a very high value for you to come to understand your fears so that you can release yourself. Is that part of your consciousness much? Yeah. We see because something sometimes what can help you is you, if you start to see in the moment the cost of fear, how much it limits us. And you you really seeing a specific concrete instance of it where you can't flower fully as a human being because of being afraid of something. And so sometimes seeing that can generate energy so that you can very gently approach the fear, even if you have to swallow hard. And even if there are tears coming down your cheeks, you you move towards it little by little. And perhaps you start to find out that it's not so difficult after all. It's something that can be learned. We can learn how to examine our fears, how to fully experience them, and then something happens in the process of doing that. Yeah. For me, it, it, it did generate a certain um, potential yeah. in, in facing the fear. Uh, could you be more clear about the potential? To um, face the fear and, and move away. I mean, if, at the same time, if there was something um, that, that, there was, that I, the fear that I broke down in front of, but at the same time, there was. That's right. Probably all of us face that, um, slowly learning how to not be afraid of fear. And wanting to be free of it. That generates tremendous energy. And that's where a lot of the joy can come in. Sometimes tasting a, a, just a spurt, a bit of freedom, when we're willing to look at something unpleasant and seeing that it was manageable. Um, 
Let's leave it at that. Any other questions or comments? about effort in regard to your own practice? Sure. I just thought, like, this came to me, where you see acceptance coming into effort. Some part of effort for me is always more than what is in the moment. It's not not enough or it's too much. Where's the balance? I don't know. It may be, the, it may be a language problem because to really observe fear, to really be mindful of fear, you have to allow fear. Or it's the, uh, the courage comes in in having the trust to allow the fear out, to allow the fear to reveal itself. It's not... See, to accept fear is a posture. Or is it, we're doing something to the fear. And as I understand it, at least what I'm suggesting, the looking and the listening is direct and pure. It has no, no motive in it of getting rid of anything. It's just um, permitting fear to fully express itself, to fully unravel itself, to reveal itself. And sometimes that means to sit still and be receptive enough so that fear is not contorted by any kind of conceptual overlay that you may put on it, uh, including accepting it. See, accepting it is an attitude. It's sort of a... It's still... It's short. What I'm talking about is being aware of it as it is. If you decide to accept it, you've already treated it a bit. Do you follow what I'm... And that's on the way, but at a certain point you can even let go of that. It's not a matter of accepting the fear. It's a matter of allowing fear to be fear. And very gently and decisively being there as fear is fear. As it shows itself, reveals itself. But, you know, you... uh, Part of your question, I think we all know when we're pushing, you know, the, again, the example of the lute, when it's too loose or too tight. One thing to watch for is if there's anxiety accompanying the effort, or as if the effort has got some ambition in it or a lot of fear in it, and then I would turn awareness on those qualities themselves. And you can sometimes tell from the result. The practice gets joyless, stale. Uh, We feel tired if there's too much pushing. And if there's not enough, if we keep retreating and avoiding things, sometimes we feel a bit of remorse. We know that we haven't given our best. We know that we've, uh, in some ways, um, moved away from it. And again, not to, to view that in a harsh way, but just objectively, we've seen that. And then we pick ourselves up and very gently move again towards whatever is coming up. Is that at all... It's so dark that it's hard to... I seem to need feedback. Yeah. No, that, that, it's so much my own experience in particular. That I, uh, what you touched on that I know I 
experience a lot is that disappointment in the moment of not putting that effort out. Mm-hmm. It seems like when I do put the effort out, then the energy is there and it transforms my experience at that moment. I see so, I yes. so vulnerable at times. Okay, that's a. Now, when you have that, when the energy is there, isn't there an exuberance that follows from it? Yeah. Uh, let's take the example of physical pain, because I, I'm pretty sure that everyone has had an opportunity to, or will have, to work with that. That's an object that the mind doesn't want to look at. But if you can gracefully, if you can be with it, uh, perhaps at the beginning not too long, you know, if you feel that you're overdoing it, you know, let it go. Not sit too long. 
too. I mean, if you have control over how long you're going to sit. Uh, sometimes use a chair. It's working that edge. Uh, but the time comes where you sit through the pain, what is called pain, with full awareness and you see that you penetrate it and somehow it isn't what you thought it was. It perhaps dissolves and there's a tremendous feeling of exuberance that you really uh, met it uh, eye to eye. And from that point on, the factor of effort is strengthened. See, it keeps getting strengthened like that. Love, everything. Head on. Head on collision. <laughs> uh, again, we have to pace ourselves in accordance with our own limits. Oh. What? I don't know. I thought that limitations were self-imposed. Right. Okay. <laughs> Try uh, not having them. You pass a law inside your mind that you will no longer have any self-imposed limits. Good. In other words, move as decisively as you can, but you may find... For, here's, here's what I mean. If fear comes up, and you've heard these, these, uh, uh, the encouragement and the suggestions this evening, but there's a feeling of tremendous terror that you're going to be... Uh, go insane, that you, you don't feel up to it. I mean, you're not even close. It might be wise to back off and go to the breath, do some walking, begin to strengthen yourself in certain ways. And as we say, it's a marathon. It's a long, it's not a sprint. I can relate to them. To which? To the fear. You must be a human being. Anyone. What? <laughs> I can be anyone. You've gone through hell. Just being just... And has the practice helped you with that? I haven't been practicing long, but I can see. What can you see? I can see in the sense that, well, um, I've read a lot on astrology. Mm -hmm. And uh, the configurations show that there is development tension of one kind or another. So as long as the tension is there, but it's also bringing development. Okay. Have you seen any of this in your actual sittings? No, not. I haven't really. You know, I've been here for a week. Mm -hmm. But last evening was the first evening that I was completely relaxed. Mm -hmm. I suppose this is mm -hmm. quite natural. Yeah. And I, I'm also a person who could be anxiety ridden. What brought you here? What brought you here? Or is the, the launching, this launch, what is the effort that brought you here? suggested, my husband was going back to India and I was going to be staying. Good old Ram <laughs> Would you do anything that Ram Das told you to do? <laughs> I might. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, no, I'm, I, well, I'm, I'm trying to understand what inside you brought you to this practice, uh, the effort of the launching effort to get it going, to start it. I think that uh, it's about 10 years now that the cycle of my life changed. Mm -hmm. I was working and teaching and earning and suddenly everything came to an end. And astrologically, I knew 
the sun had moved into Pisces. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so it means that no more materialism for me. <laughs> Something is going to happen. Finally, I went into direction. Just, this is just an overview of it. So. And uh, the climate everywhere, wherever you read, wherever there are sessions of all kinds going on, and you do get sucked into them. Try out what you can. Okay, now, if you got sucked into this one, (laughs) and if there isn't some good, down-to-earth, solid, empirical uh, confirmation that that there's something uh, of value in a human being paying attention to what's happening to them from moment to moment, I would say you'd be wasting your time here. You won't stay. I mean, it's not here that's important. You won't continue doing the practice. See, at some point, even Ramdas will fade out and astrology will fade out. And if there isn't this inner sense that, that this is a worthwhile thing for a human being to do, it'll lose energy. However, some way the mind would be concentrated by the time of death, right? Mm-hmm. Even partially? Yes. You're Indian? You're all set. You have it in your genes. (laughs) We Americans, we have to work so hard for it. Graft it onto ourselves. But you work hard and play hard. Okay, let's start to do the walking meditation again. Please ag- Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.